Hello, welcome to Next Class. I'm a Bird Civil host and joined as always by my friend Tom Burnford. Tom, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Rob. Looking forward to this edition and this conversation coming up. Great. We're joined, as those of you watching and not listening, by a good friend of mine, Kim Smith. Welcome, Kim. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Great. And for our listeners that don't know Kim, she is a serial educational entrepreneur. She's one of the co-founders of Teach for America, co-founder of Bellwether Education Partners, uh, co-founder of the Aspen Pahara Institute, and I think I'm forgetting one, Kim. What? Uh, oh, New Schools Venture Fund. New You're Schools. Right. New Schools Venture Fund. Um, so you, um, uh, my wife would say that you've got a, a, a problem like I do, um, professional <laughs> attention deficit. Some people say that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I, mean, I prefer it's, to look at yeah. it as a desire to innovate, but some people do describe it that way. That's fair. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing. And you just you look back on the past 30 years and it's gonna be a fun conversation today with all those openings. I met Kim uh, when I did my fellowship at the Pahara Institute. I still remember Kim that first meeting in Park City at Hotel Park City. And um it was a I didn't know what I was getting into, but what a what an amazing experience and some amazing friends that we both got out of that that group there, um, and a number of them on the podcast: Jennifer Henry, Don Shelby, Laura Slover will be our next guest for those listening and want to learn about assessments. And uh, so, it's been fun having a number of those people on this podcast. But tell us what you're up to today. Well, that's a that's a great segue, actually, because as I was listening to you talk about Pahara, I was reflecting on the way the work we did there was trying to manifest with adults the sort of development that we know we need to do for young people, which then takes me back into my perpetual header, which is what do we need to do next to encourage more innovation? Um, and Rob, you and I are frequently talking about innovation in education specifically and why more of it isn't happening. So we are finding ourselves now in a moment where the way the architecture of the system was designed is preventing innovation. And so the work I'm focusing on now with a group of people is to launch something called the Learner Studio to try to help and support a real acceleration of reinventing that system instead of tinkering around the edges, which all of us have done for quite a while with some really good effect, but generally at small scale and generally in spite of the fact that the system has been engineered to prevent that innovation. So our goal with the Learner Studio is to, um, we really have three, three things we're trying to do. One is there's a set of innovators out there who with help from the COVID disruption, but often starting earlier than that, like the work you all did at Crystal Ray, are trying to contribute to that redesign. Often these are kind of small point solutions, but there are a lot of really great innovators out there like that. So with that set of people, we want to support them, encourage them, bring them together to have a set of kind of coherent approaches. The second thing is bring more people into that work, particularly amongst funders. There's a lot of philanthropists out there who don't realize that we have this special moment and opportunity to really re-engineer the system. So bring more of those folks into a coalition, funders, but also practitioners. And then the third bucket is um, hearkening back to new schools days, um, investing in some social purpose businesses that are trying to create tools for that next horizon of the system which is generally a little bit ahead of where traditional capital will invest because the demand isn't strong yet. So we wanna to try to get out ahead and help the implementers have better tools 
all of those things are kind of geared together to create more momentum so we don't lose the opportunity that this COVID disruption has created to really kind of re-engineer the system. That's really interesting about the COVID opportunity. You're, you're absolutely right. And we've, we've talked a lot about that where, um, and in one sense, we, we did innovate. We had to innovate because you couldn't mm -hmm. go to school. Um, and mm -hmm. at the same time, it's almost like people rushed back to the way it was, as opposed yeah. to jumping into what you're talking about. Let's step back so we can go forward. I was yeah. much more hopeful that we would have seen more innovation coming out of it. So that's one of the reasons we're excited to have you on today. Tom, you're going to look like you wanted to say. You're muted, Tom. Still happens on podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kim, you you um, you mentioned a phrase, though, where you said that, you know, you some systems are engineered to prevent innovation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm like, Wait, what do you mean engineered as if we intend to avoid innovation? Um, and so as, as you went on, I was just thinking about that. And I'm like, ooh, yeah, maybe a lot of the schools I worked with <laughs> and have been part of, particularly I think Catholic schools, can fall into that trap because yeah. we are so historically based. And we've been doing this for a thousand years plus. Yeah. So, but that was an interesting way to put it and a challenging way to put Sometimes in the design of schools, there's uh, want to make it hard to change, maybe. I don't know. Design of the schools. And the other thing I'm really trying to focus on, because it's a problem that no one feels like they own, design of the whole system that those schools fit into. Um, and I, I've been thinking as I've listened to some of your podcasts, the, the question that occurred to me as I was thinking about the systems change was um, differentiating historical patterns and rules and all that architecture from a sense of tradition. Like how do we separate these two things and say, there's parts of our tradition we want to honor and keep, which often has to do with how we deal with people and sort of what our underlying values are. And then there's this whole set of engineered architecture that we think we have to keep in order to keep the tradition and in order to keep the values. But part of what I've been trying to figure out with colleagues is how do we separate those two things? How do we give people a sense that they can hold on to traditions and to values and particularly relationships, but not feel that the only way to do that is to cling to this old, like engineered architecture? That, does that right. make sense? And it, it does make sense. And, and in my world, in the Catholic world, to, to add complexity to that, we have chosen to hang on to certain traditions and interpret them, for example, complete centralized authority when actually the system in its origins is, is based upon subsidiarity and making decisions at the local level, at the mm -hmm. lowest level. And we mm -hmm. get all hung up in Catholic schools and dioceses and superintendents and systems in authority between our authentic tradition and in some sense what people want, which is to be told what to do. And that, that can kill innovation in a heartbeat, right? I mean, that's, yeah. Well, and yeah, for sure. Kim, you, you, I know you listened to the previous episode with Don Shelby, and you know Don was kindergarten through graduate school Catholic educated. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I asked him, uh, you know, why have you never spent a day working in Catholic schools? And it was because that he likes innovation. Mm -hmm. But you would think because of subsidiarity and because of little less bureaucracy than a traditional district, 
you would think they would be able to innovate, but they really haven't. I mean, Christa as you referenced, I argue, I mean, having run the network, like it really isn't that innovative. It just, it has a work study model that was a revenue stream that turned into, by accident, an amazing part of the learning. But it wasn't like they set out to innovate and put these students in a work environment. It was pure revenue. Um, but that's really the well, but that's just necessity being the mother of invention, right? right. Yes, you created it because you had a revenue challenge. But also simultaneously, you were demonstrating for people that active learning, learning in a real world context are really powerful. And people have come back around to understand that, which is super important, right? That we have a proof point on that. It's contributing. Right sort of feel like there are all these, um, often I think about it as puzzle pieces. There are all these amazing puzzle pieces out there. The thing we haven't yet done that we need to now collaborate on is what is the picture on top of the puzzle box that we're trying to fit these pieces together in, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't just dump the puzzle pieces on a table and they miraculously fit together and there's your picture, right? Like you, you it helps if you have a sense of how you want the parts of the system to fit together. And that piece, even though you started it from a revenue standpoint, is a critical piece that young people have agency and some choices and get beyond the classroom and have real world learning. Like those things are really important. And yes, you came about it through a roundabout way. <laughs> That's how innovation works sometimes, right? No, you're, you're absolutely right. Father Foley, the founder of Creaster, often says the work program is our, it's our secret sauce. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's also, you know, interesting to think about that in a different context, like how do you get students out of the classroom? Not just the work study program, but how could you? There's a project with the Jesuits right now um, where they want to take that concept, not for revenue, but to get them into the real world. They could be doing all sorts of different activities, but they're actually looking at creating a new Jesuit school. The, the head of the Jesuits, he's called Father General, um, which is kind of a funny name for a father, <laughs> Father General. But he uh, he said recently that we need to innovate to stay relevant, which is pretty powerful from you know the the order that has you know the most Catholic schools. We need to innovate to stay relevant. So I thought that was was interesting. Um, Absolutely. So the learning studio, um, where talk to us about learner studio and um, how is it is it up and running? Where are you at in the the launch process? Ooh, that's a good question. Ah. Uh, not, we have not officially launched it yet. So you're getting a little inside scoop. Um, it has been coming together over the last couple of years in collaboration uh, with a, a whole bunch of other innovators kind of looking at what is happening, what are the great puzzle pieces that are out there and what's missing. And part of those three things we picked to focus on comes back to that, how do we get these puzzle pieces to fit together better? And how do we not lose this opportunity? So my Thought is we'll probably launch sometime this summer, would be my guess. And to date, what we've been doing is really trying to figure out who's already out there doing amazing work. How do we think about sort of connective tissue across those efforts? Where are the gaps? Where should we be focused to add more value? It'll be a nonprofit, and it'll have those two parts of kind of field building and venture building. Um, but no, you guys are you guys are a little ahead of the curve here, as as always, being innovation people. <laughs> That's great. Um, let's shift sort of a little bit here, but um, last season we had a, a good friend of mine and you're one of your co-founders of TFA, I believe Richard Barth, on the podcast. And uh, 
for those that didn't listen, Richard was the longtime CEO of KIPP, one of the largest and most successful charter networks in the country. And he happens to be married to Wendy Kopp, another one of your co-founders of Teach for America. Uh, just to clarify, I would say Wendy is the founder and Richard and I were among her merry band of early team that started it. So I don't want to mislead anyone, but yes, keep going. Keep going. Okay. So Richard and Wendy, who I think you've told me actually met at TFA and um, yeah. uh, they are incredible influences on American education from Kept to TFA and, and, uh, and now teach for all her work mm-hmm. around the world. Um, but yet they sent their three sons to a Catholic Jesuit high school. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty interesting conversation. And that go back to last season, Richard Barth is a great conversation. You like Richard and Wendy have had a tremendous impact on American education, public and charter. Um, but yet you and your husband are sending your daughter to a Catholic high school, a Salian school. Uh, which I know very well. We had the pleasure to have dinner with the school president a couple weeks ago. So talk to us about that choice and and what how you came to that. Yeah, I have two kids. One is at a New Tech High School, which is a district school here where we live. Um, that's Joy, and Grace is at Justin Siena here um, in town. And I guess the crux of it is well, first and foremost, they're different learners. They're different kids. They are comfortable in different kinds of communities. And we engaged both the kids with us in thinking about the right high school. And I suspect that may be true with Wendy and Richard as well, in terms of like the right fit, the right community. As you guys know, um, Justin Sienna, um, all heart, a very heavy emphasis as LaSallian schools do on community, on relationships, like that is who Grace is. That resonates so strongly for her. She feels at home. Um, and I love that that is all grounded in a set of values that we don't happen to be Catholic, but the way that is manifested in terms of the values and what is emphasized is so consistent with what our values are. So like, half the school is not Catholic, but I would say everyone who's chosen to be at that school has chosen to embrace a set of values that are important to us. And so if they do that through Catholic religion, through a different religion, that's fine with me. I, we don't happen to do that, but I'm grateful that those values are there and that, that emphasis on relationship and community and service are there because, and, and interestingly too, Rob and Tom, that school's actually more diverse than the public schools that my other daughter are in, is in. So I didn't really know going in, I did check to make sure it was diverse and I was happy to hear that it was. And only after we arrived there did I look around and realize, you know, this is more diverse than the public district schools here in town. So that that was kind of an extra bonus um, that I wasn't expecting. And I would say they're they're pretty traditional um, in structure, but like Grace is taking Project Lead the Way engineering classes. So I, I do think they have some components where they're trying to kind of get beyond the old model and do some more hands-on learning. Um, but the crux of it really was the community values the all heart, the relationships, the service really spoke to Grace. And and she's the one actually who initiated um, going. Yeah. Well, and Kim, I can't think of anybody who exemplifies all heart more than you. So when I heard you were looking at it, I was like, this, this could be a great fit. Um, it has been great. Yeah. That's great. We're going to take a brief pause for to hear a word from our sponsor. Catholic Virtual is the trusted online education partner of Catholic schools worldwide. We develop customized online learning solutions to meet the needs of our partner schools and their students. Visit our website at www. 
www.catholicvirtual.com to learn more. Now back to the episode. Yeah, and, and thank you for sharing that, Kim. I, I have three children um, myself, and, and one goes to Catholic school because it's a great fit for her, uh, and the other two are in uh, excellent local um, public schools. I think it's interesting your comment about finding uh, diversity at Justin Siena, um, because we, we, I mean, I still encounter people who think Catholic schools are for Catholics, and mm. they're not. The way we educate is a way that is Catholic because mm. the ministry of the Catholic Church and the people involved, mm. for the most part, but not exclusively, are Catholic. Mm. But we'll educate anyone who, you know, who can come and do our best to serve and welcome um, all students to the greatest extent possible. Um, mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's And it's a very welcoming community. Like I have found, I've dealt with, talking about the adults now in the system, the administrators and the teachers, I have plenty of friends and colleagues who work in the public system in general. In the particular town I live in, the district is not very welcoming and it is not focused on having a relationship with parents. So there's a serious contrast between that modality and the way I feel engaging with folks at Justin Siena, where I feel like they are clear, that is part of the values, I guess, right? right. They are clear, they are educating young people who then live within families or other communities and they embrace that. And, and you can just tell they're interested in that whole equation of the young person, the young person's life, the young person's community and the school community. And that ethos, not necessarily grounded in religion, but that ethos of all that has to be a part of the way we develop this new system we're talking about. It shouldn't be that behaving that way has to be in spite of all the system architecture, which is kind of how it, often feels when you're dealing with folks in a public district. So I think there are certain parts of the equation that the Catholic system is out ahead of the curve on and people will look to to learn from. Um, might not be what you'd obviously think of in terms of like a tech answer, perhaps right. that too. But I think on this part around whole child, whole community, whole family, I think there's um, there's a lot to build on there. Yeah, no, I I agree. And I think a lot of that comes down to leadership, which sort of leads to to our uh, our next question, um, leadership being so important in in every school setting, because the, the, the teachers look to the, the leader of the school and the students look to the teachers and the parents look to, you know, um, we know how that works. So, and yet we know there are many challenges facing leaders today, whatever school. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges, please, that you see teachers face, I mean, excuse me, leaders, facing today? Yeah. I do think this is a really, really important subject to be digging into in two dimensions. I'll speak a little bit more to the innovation dimension, but before I do that, I just want to acknowledge people are exhausted. You know, the COVID disruption, you know, as a systemic effect has been helpful for innovation, but it's exhausted the human beings who are trying to keep schools running. And so, one thing I just want to name is there's a lot of press out there around the teacher shortage or people leaving teaching. That's real. Particularly the pipeline is, is not as robust as we want it to be. We're not talking as much about school leaders and system leaders, but I am seeing an exodus amongst school leaders and system leaders as well. So I'm expecting attention is going to swing back around to that in the not too distant future yeah. because 
the spots are being filled, but they're not necessarily being filled with people who bring a lot of experience to the mix because we just don't have a great robust pipeline. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's one problem. And then when you think about it in the context of trying to innovate forward, that's a whole second layer of challenge. What's interesting is the way we want schools to work in this new system, I do actually feel is more aligned with what most people got into the profession to do in terms of the emphasis on relationships and learning in a more creative context and not just kids with butts in seats, you know, receiving information. So if we can get to the new model, I think it will help us have a much more robust pipeline of leaders and teachers. But between here and there, it's going to get ugly, I think. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I can dig into any part of that you want. But the last thing I guess I'd say about leaders is, gosh, it's one of the hardest jobs and it gets not enough respect. And, and at the school level in particular, in the public sector, it's not compensated fairly. I think the private schools do a little bit better at understanding how complicated it is. Um, and I think some private schools are smart enough to really differentiate operations from academic leadership, but that's very smart. And we're just beginning to bring that sort of practice into the public school system. So I'll yeah. stop there, but I'm agreeing with you wholeheartedly on how important it is. You know, it's Kim, it's been so hard. I um, I convene a group of presidents, Catholic school presidents every month, and we've been doing it since 2019, uh, modeled after Pahara. Um, and um, every year, it's a group of 15, every year, probably three, four leave their job. It's just a churn. Uh, it's such a hard job. Many will say it's the hardest job and the best job they'll ever have. I mean, you're fortunate mm -hmm. enough, Justin Sienna, to have a very experienced, talented new president there. I'm yeah, looking forward excited. to meeting your new principal. He's going to be at Lone Rock. Um, oh, terrific. Great. If you would join, you, you can't, but if you would have been able to join us, you would be able to meet him. But um, I am sensing a little bit better year this year from school leaders than last year. Last year was yeah. really hard. Um, I don't know if you're seeing that too with, with the people you're working with. I think last year was harder for sure. Um, and I think we also have a cumulative problem. Right. So if last year was brutal, really the last two or three, and then they can come back into a context that's healthy, then I think you're okay. If you have a set of really, really hard years, and then you're asking people to step into a context that's still not healthy, I don't mean COVID-wise, I mean in terms of the, the ecosystem of the school, right. I think people are just going to hit the wall on like cumulative exhaustion if we don't re-engineer that job, if we don't re-engineer the way it works for them. Right? The, the teacher version is they need more flexibility. The job is the same the last year of their career as it was the first day of their career. You know what I mean? Like there's some things we have to re-engineer. This doesn't speak to the leadership thing, but on the teacher front, a friend was telling me a story about a ed tech company that is somewhat similar to Catholic Virtual that brings in some great teachers to the classroom virtually that had 600 applicants for a teaching position. And they were working with a school that happened to be a public school that was trying to fill positions that had no applicants for their positions. So just that contrast, right, of right. why, because the job is different and we can go into that. It's a teacher focused one, but, but I think we're going to see the leadership flavor of that too, because so much is so hardwired. There are not many degrees of flexibility. Um, and so I, I agree with you. I think the people hitting the wall this year, less, the, the year is not as hard as last year was. 
But I do think there's a cumulative exhaustion that we're facing too with people retiring early and trying to figure out other other work that's valuable and meaningful and not in schools, honestly, is what I'm saying. Right. You know, and Brent met another friend of ours who's been on the podcast. He's doing some really interesting work around teaching. Yeah. Changing the teacher, yeah. but I, you're right. I haven't heard anybody talking about changing the job of a leader or yeah. leaders within a school. That's that's a, that's a really interesting comment. It uh, could dovetail with Brent's work actually in some interesting ways because as he thinks about the teams and the next education workforce, you could imagine um, then elevating that to the school wide level and thinking about well, how does that change the roles we need from leaders as well? I don't think he's on that yet, but I could imagine it. Um, connecting back to leaders. Holding up, up to the leader. I mean, you know, we, we know that the situations where, for example, in a Catholic school or some privates, you, you have a uh, president principal model specifically mm -hmm. to help define jobs. Whereas uh, I was trying to talk to an elementary school principal the other day, but couldn't get the meeting because she mm -hmm. had teachers. And so she was in class filling for teachers on a pretty permanent basis. So couldn't we meet with me? talk about a solution for teacher recruitment. It's like crazy. That's the answer to Rob's question about this year versus last year. Last year was brutal to figure out how to just get people to be able to be on site. This year is that problem where they're filling in for teachers and the pipeline of teachers is not there and they have a massive staffing problem. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, the same, I was just with the uh, diocese in Oakland and the, the biggest problem they have is two principals, two different schools, teaching full-time. I'm like, well, who's running the school then? Like, so the, 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 there's going to be a tail to that problem. You know what I mean? Like right now, the answer is they're stepping in. Next year, they just can keep that up, right? We're going to see that come back to bite us next year and the following year. And that's maybe right. a little exhaustion as well on top of it. Yep. That's worrying. Um, Kim, let's shift. You've talked earlier about innovation and you've uh, talked about the systemic reason innovation is challenged in education, but um, the three of us have been in this business for a long time and not much has changed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, if, if I went back to Market High, which I do where I went to high school, it, you know, the whiteboard is the big new innovation. You know, <laughs> the, the, there really is, you know, they got a new, a new weight room, but why, why is there so little innovation in education after all the work so many of us have been doing for 30 plus years? Well, I mean, at the heart of it in some ways is just a failure of creativity, right? But having said that, um, I do think it goes back to the way the system has been engineered, like we talked about a few minutes ago to prevent it. The system was engineered to be stable. The system was engineered more than anything else, honestly, to be efficient. We had a lot of kids, we wanted to expand access to basic knowledge and basic education. That was a good goal. In order to do that, we embraced essentially the factory model and we did it because it was efficient, right? If you put a lot of kids in seats, if you have someone at the front of the room, if you standardize the content, these things in and of themselves are not bad. It's just that when you architect a system that becomes inflexible and only functions that way, and then the world changes around us. And Static knowledge is not what we need anymore. Everyone goes to Google for that. Right. We can memorize the dates of various wars. We certainly need to have a sense of perspective and history. Do we really need to memorize the dates? So there's a way in which we need to modernize the content. Why are we studying trigonometry and not probability right. and statistics? 
a regular average person in the work world would understand that's not right. There's all kinds of things like that that we should be able to fix that are kind of hardwired into an inflexible standardized system. That's the main thing we have to change in this paradigm shift, move toward competencies. All the things we need are being done. Again, going back to the puzzle pieces, every puzzle piece we need has innovators working on it, which is great. It's just that we haven't yet re-architected the system to fit those in. And so it's that lack of re-architecture that means the great innovators are kind of like pushing against the system instead of the system enabling them. And so the question in front of all of us who are innovators and who think that way is to say, okay, normally I would be innovating on a single solution. Let me pause and step back and look at the whole system and say, how do I use my innovators, entrepreneurs brain to rethink the architecture of the system so that all this human ingenuity that's out there can be kind of like going with the current, to mix a few metaphors, right? Like that's the piece that we have not done. There are starting points, competencies. A bunch of states have portraits of a graduate. The work you guys did with Crystal Ray on learning beyond the classroom and others are doing as well. Like ed tech is actually going to have a big effect. The work you're doing with Catholic Virtual to show you can have great instruction. That's not a person in the room, right? You can have project-based learning. There's, there's, there's great work happening on every front. It's, it's one of those moments where the sum isn't greater, the whole isn't greater than the sum of the parts, right? And so that's the work I would invite the innovators out there to begin to put their shoulder to because that redesign work and re-engineering work is different from just cobbling together a bunch of point answers. It's, it's true engineering of the system. And nobody feels like they own that, as best I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Kim, I mean, if, if we try to try to look at, look ahead a little bit and say, what is, what do you think are some, um, some of the big disruptors to education that are coming down, down the pike potentially? Yeah. Well, for the last two years, I've been saying AI, and now I think everybody sees that. I didn't know open AI was going to have quite the disruptive force it did, but it was clear AI was going to let us batch assessments. One of the things, one of the pieces of the architecture that's the hardest to get around in the public system is accountability, which is test-based accountability. It's very rigid. We can get around that with the help of AI on the one hand to get better feedback, to have better formative assessments, to make the mm. teacher's job easier on some of those assessments, and to have more robust assessments that are kind of embedded in the work instead of a exam you sit down for. There'll still be some exams, but right, but OpenAI and ChatGPT, I think, has really woken people up to the fact that our old ways of operating are, are not going to last much longer. That, I right. think that itself is really helpful because the mindset um, around whether we could change it, right? There was just this pessimism that you can't re-architect the system. None of these things will change. I'm sure you guys have seen this, like, oh, this too shall pass. Nothing's going to change. I think ChatGPT has changed that. People thought oh, wow, this is big. This is different. Another geeky piece, not to bore listeners who aren't um, technological, but the way the blockchain technology will let us track learning across many institutions goes back to your point, Rob, about learning beyond the classroom. That's been really hard before because how would you have a transcript that has some learning in school and some learning at 4 and some learning in the club? That's going to help us with that. So there are technological pieces that will help us. And then another force that's going to help is what we were just talking about with talent, 
Gen Z is not going to take the jobs that the old system requires mm. to survive. They're, they're just not. We're in a massive generational transition. Mm. I'm curious if you guys are seeing this, but the tail of millennials, the iGen, the Gen Zs, those folks, they are not going to take those jobs. They will go get different jobs. So if we want to have them in our learning environments, we're going to have to re-engineer the work, which you yeah. talked about having Brent on here. But I'm sharing all these different pieces to say no yeah. one of them is the single yeah. silver bullet. It's more yeah. uh, by adding these pieces up together, we have a real shot to, to really change things, right. I think. Right. And uh, that's a great segue to our next podcast with Laura Slover. That you just I just got five questions for Laura coming out of that. That will be really fun to to talk to her about that. Um, Kim, we want to thank you so much for your time today. We have one final question, which since you have listened to a few of our podcasts, you had this one coming. This won't be a surprise <laughs> for you. I can I can always get our guests. I know you've li listened or not if you know what's yeah. coming next. Yeah. But so we yeah. ask all of our all of our uh, guests on the next class. Who was your greatest teacher and why? Yeah, uh, I have a really hard time giving a single answer to any of these things. So I have three and I'm going to do them really fast. The first one was my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Hazard, who had us um, out in the community doing, you know, bake sales and whatnot to raise money to go on trips to visit history, Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia. I grew up in New Jersey. So American history. Um, she was a force to be reckoned with on her very high heels. She was probably in her 60s by the time I had her and unbelievable energy. Um, the second, which I think a lot of people say, but particular flavor for me is my parents who grew up in the deep South. And what they taught me among many things was it is possible to envision a different future than what you have experienced. You don't have to have experience to know that it is possible. That was huge for me in terms of thinking about innovation and entrepreneurship. And then the last one I would say is John and Ann Dorr. I know um, John mentioned um, Reed Hastings, who's been an incredible mentor as well. But John and Ann Dorr, well, part of what they taught me is um, the importance of people to innovation, even though he's a venture capitalist. He's an unbelievable facilitator. Like He understands the need to help people communicate and to move forward communicating together. And the last piece is um, he... Um, even when he was focusing on the innovation that an entrepreneur was doing, would eventually get um, to the place of understanding this person as a person and asking what motivated them and who they were and what about their family, their home context, whatever, who, who they were as a person, who they brought to the table. And um, I watched the way that um, enabled him to amplify the human ingenuity that he's a huge believer in, right? That people can solve problems, but they need to believe they're seen do you know what i mean and that they're a part of that solution so uh so much from so many people so sorry to not give you one but there are three amazing teachers. i've been incredibly fortunate breaking the rules i love it <laughs> well kim thank you so much for joining us on the next class to our listeners thank you for um, joining us today and if you enjoyed today's show like us give us five stars and most importantly share this with your friends and family um, Tom, any final words? No, thank you. That's been great to chat with you, Kim, and uh, love the ideas. You've given us a lot to think about. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for all you guys are doing. Great. Thank you, and we'll see you next time in the next class.